Thank you, Brennan. And uh, Katie's not in here, but when you see Katie, would you give her a big thank you as well? I know we expressed appreciation for all the volunteers, but somebody's got to shotgun that thing, and Katie does, and it occupies so much of her time and attention in getting ready. So let's be sure to let her know how much we appreciate it. Well, I think you saw that VBS was a great experience for the kids and for the volunteers that are there. I'm glad they used Mario. At least I knew what they were talking about. You know, if not, we'd have to go back to Pong or some of you can. How many can remember Pong? Oh, look at that. You're all old people in here. <laughs> the, the focus, as Katie said this week, has been on a relationship with God. Uh, that God created us to know him, that Jesus is our Savior, and that we can trust him, that if we, particularly as we get to know how much he loves us and cares for us, we can trust him. Uh, this experience of salvation and spiritual growth, all by God's divine grace, but is fueled on the human side by faith. And uh, often we tend to see faith as a destination rather than a journey. Uh, something to be acquired rather than something to be developed. But we need to remember that faith is not an endpoint; it's a highway, and as a highway, we know highways frequently cross rough terrain and difficult spaces. And so this morning, we're going to look at a story from the Gospels that's, that really is going to teach us about faith. And though our focus today is on a man by the name of Jairus, uh, there's an interruption that happens in the middle of the story, and so we really need to see the story as a whole unit. The Gospel writer Mark shares with us an experience in the life of two people, two very unlikely candidates for Jesus' attention, two people from contrasting sides of society. Uh, one is a woman who is an outcast within society, the other is a very prominent, well-heeled member of society. And when you examine the situations, in one sense, you're struck by how unlike they are. Uh, in a societal sense, they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But when you watch as their stories unfold, you also discover how much they were alike. And what is it that these two had in common? You know, what, what, what did they share? I would suggest two things. First of all, a need that neither they nor others could meet. And second, a faith, a belief that Jesus could do something about it. Now, we're introduced to the beginning character in Mark's Gospel. If you have a Bible and want to turn to Mark 5 or grab a Bible in front of you, it's page 1069. Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. So if you just want to follow along, Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So if you read earlier in the gospel, you see that Jesus has been healing the sick. He's been teaching. He's been ministering to people's needs outside the city of Capernaum on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. 
and he and his disciples, they set out across the sea to go to the other side when a strong windstorm suddenly falls upon them, strikes their boat, almost swamping them. And responding to the cry of the disciples who feared for the very survival, Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind. And all was calm, exercising authority over the physical elements of nature. The disciples no longer feared the storm. They now feared the one who had the power to still the storm. Look at Jesus' comments back to them. Back in chapter 4, verse 40, after he calmed the seas, Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? So these are men who had left their vocations that are following Jesus, These are men who had ringside seats at Jesus' teaching, at all of his miracles, all of his healings. And yet, Jesus said, you have no faith. Well, they reached the other side of the sea, which was a Gentile region. And when their little group was accosted by a man who was possessed by a legion of demons, Jesus rebuked the demons, and they fled out of him. Well, that was too much for the people around there that they could handle. So they begged Jesus to leave, and he does. He was to go back to where he came from. So they all get back in the boat again, and they set off for the other side of the sea. As soon as they arrive at Capernaum, uh, they're pressed about by this huge multitude, many of the same people who they left behind earlier. Luke in his gospel account says this, and as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. The next thing we see is this man, Jairus, um, who, as he marks, says that he was a synagogue official. Literally, he was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a prominent citizen. He, he's a respected leader. He's probably wealthy. No doubt he's influential. Uh, His daughter, Luke says his only daughter, lay at the point of death. And yet, now get this, his wealth, his influence, his power that he had because of his position could neither buy nor could it gain his daughter's health. He was a man of need. Think about this guy for just a moment. What what are the prerequisites of his faith? What, What was necessary for Jairus to overcome anything Thing in terms of approaching Jesus. I would suggest two things. First, prejudice had to be overcome. In all likelihood, Jesus and Jairus have had contact in the, in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum. And never forget that Jesus' biggest critics, the most fierce opponents that Jesus faced in his earthly ministry, were religious leaders. Now, whether Jairus and Jesus went at it, we really don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. But we do know this, he was willing to lose his friends to help his daughter. The second thing that had to be overcome was his pride. He had to set his pride aside. And he does it very consciously and purposefully. He comes up to Jesus and he falls on his knees before him. It's a symbol of honor, of worship, of humility. So what changed it all for Jairus? What was it that led him to set aside his prejudice and his pride? I think it is that he had a need that he could not meet. It was a situation that was totally out of his control. 
So many people are driven initially to Jesus because of a need. Maybe some of you can identify. A need for forgiveness. A need for healing. A need to deal with guilt or with shame. Uh, a need for love and acceptance. A need to be cleansed of one's sin, of that sense that things are just not right. Though I don't know what it feels like to have a child at the point of death, I do have a little feel of that with twin grandchildren born at 24 and a half weeks, one of whom passed away. There's such helplessness. You realize there's nothing you can do. And I think that's Jairus here. There must have been such personal anguish that it drove whatever pride out of him that was there. And he bows at the feet of Jesus and he pleads for his intervention. And what's the response of Jesus? He doesn't lecture Jairus on the condition of his life or on the failings of his religiosity. He didn't sit him down for a discussion of the situation, examining the theological purity of his faith or probing the depth of his belief. Instead, Jesus responded right away, and his departure was immediate, without hesitation. In fact, his departure was not only in immediate, it was also independent. Remember the picture that's painted there by Mark is that the crowd is pressing all around Jesus. People are probably tugging on his sleeve. They're grasping his arm. They're clamoring for his attention. But Jesus operated independently of other people's desires. He was about his father's business. And so in response to the desperate plea and the desperate faith of Jairus, Jesus leaves and heads with him to the house where his daughter lay there, the delight of his life, hovering close to death. Mark tells us that as they moved on and began to walk toward Jairus' house, Another person has an encounter. Look in the text of Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 24. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Look at the problems that are encountered by her faith. It was for the impossible. She had an awful, persistent physical problem. This isn't just her monthly cycle. This is a continuous flow of blood, and it's been ongoing for 12 years. It must have seemed hopeless. She'd gone from doctor to doctor seeking a cure. Not only had they been unable to resolve her medical affliction, but the woman's situation actually grew worse. And not only that, she'd used up all of her financial resources that she had and was now virtually destitute. No money, no relief, no solution, no hope. That's this woman. And there's not only physical suffering, there's also emotional and psychological suffering. Remember about that culture, the Old Testament Jewish ceremonial law declared that because of her condition, she was considered unclean, could not go anywhere into the synagogue or be involved. I know it's hard for us to understand that today in our culture, 
But you see, Jesus touched the leper and the man was healed. He came into the area of the tombs to encounter a man possessed by unclean demons. The man was set free. Jesus was touched by an unclean woman with a hemorrhage. She was healed, but he was untainted by that impurity. He would touch the dead body of a child, and yet he wouldn't be defiled according to the law. Jesus did not discriminate against those who were unclean, those who were impure, but rather in his love and in his grace, he reached out to them. This is the Jesus who invites us to know him, who invites us to trust in him. This unidentified woman was an outcast in society, but she'd heard about Jesus, and from what he'd heard, she believed that somehow, in some way, Jesus might be able to help her. And like so many in her day, she believed that sometimes the garments or even the shadow of a holy person might cause healing. And so in anonymity, she presses the crowd, disregarding the religious and the societal protocol, and she reached out to touch Jesus' cloak. And at the very moment that her hand of faith connected with Jesus, she was healed immediately. And she knew it. And she pulled back from the crowd. Now, look in Mark's Gospel, verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out for him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus gl glances out. He sees the woman. And to her credit, he didn't have to call her out, uh, demanding that she step forward. She came to him fell down at his feet. And she does a very remarkable thing. She begins to explain everything in the hearing of the crowd. Everything, the history of her embarrassing condition, her hopelessness, her search for help, her, her belief in Jesus' power to heal. You know, you have to ask yourself, well, why did Jesus kind of demand that she identify herself? Why, why didn't he just let her go? Uh, and be healed. I, I think for several reasons. One is for the woman's sake. Jesus wanted her to acknowledge the need that she had in her, her healing. Public confession was important to Jesus. And Jesus wanted her to know the true source of her healing. Second, I think it was for the crowd's sake. All kinds of people, with no doubt all kinds of needs, are pressing upon Jesus in contact with his cloak. And yet there's no indication that anyone else was healed. The early church leader Augustine said it well, flesh presses, faith touches. Jesus wanted the crowd to know what had happened. And then I think he did it for the disciples' sake. Jesus wanted to teach the disciples something here. What had he said about their faith just before? You don't have any. And now I think he wants them to understand here is a woman of all things, a woman who had faith. <clears throat> don't, don't miss this last one. It was for Jairus' sake. Can you imagine what he's thinking and feeling with this interruption? We've got to get to my house. 
What's this woman doing here? You know, he might have been trying to pry Jesus away from the pressing crowd, saying to Jesus, come on, we've got to hurry. Jesus reveals publicly to all the cause of the cure. Look at verse 34. He said to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, your faith was the key to the healing. (coughs) Not your touch. Not your superstition, not magic, but your faith. Far from perfect faith, God honored the faith that she did have. And while Jesus is still speaking with the woman, people come from Jairus' home with shattering news. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine how devastating this must have been to Jairus? I find that it's interesting that it's now that Jesus speaks. He doesn't wait for Jairus to respond to this horrible news. But instead, he says in verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The verb text uh, tense in that original text indicates the meaning of keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Don't falter in your faith. And Jesus must have seen some faith, some indication in Jairus here of of his trust by coming to Jesus. uh, Jairus came to Jesus with a faith that dared to hope that Jesus could help. And Jesus' involvement with the woman surely must have encouraged Jairus. But what Jesus is now calling on Jairus to believe in is not hope for healing. He's now calling for him to believe in hope for resurrection. He calls for persevering faith. A faith that's going to go beyond anything that he can see or conceive. And so verse 37, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people wheeling and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now the professional mourners have arrived. They've begun their lament. There was no doubt in anyone's mind this little girl was dead. A sense of finality. It was over. The time for hope had passed. Reality was setting in. Interestingly, this same sense of, of this sense of hopelessness would be experienced by the disciples in the near future when Jesus himself was put to death. But Jesus was in the house. Jesus says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside, took the father's father the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Now remember that Mark's gospel is the apostle Peter's account of his experiences with Jesus. And this incident had such an impact on him that he would even remember the words of Jesus spoken in Aramaic. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. 
And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What a contrast between all of the commotion and the hopelessness of these mourners and the absolute power and authority of Jesus. Once again, don't miss the teaching moment that this is for the disciples. Jesus is pointing them to the future of a power that can even raise him from the dead. Two people, two needs, a similar faith born out of a sense of hopelessness, and only Jesus could help. Only his amazing power would suffice. What's the point? What should you leave with this morning? Uh, is it that if you just if you have enough faith that God's going to heal you, or any of your loved ones, He's going to raise those who are dead? Let me suggest some things to you. First of all, God cares. Jesus owed those two folks absolutely nothing. There was nothing about them that required or demanded his attention or help. It was all the sovereign grace of God. And you need to know, and this is what's been told and communicated with the children during VBS, God really cares. God cares about you today. He not only knows your life situation intimately, he really cares about it. The second thing is that Jesus responds to faith, though imperfect it might be. The woman's faith was partly superstition, somewhat ignorant, and yet Jesus saw her faith as it was and responded to that faith. Jesus responded to her plea for help. You know, the problem is we can't put God in a box and say, well, he can and will only work when we exercise perfect faith, knowledgeable faith, theologically correct faith. You know what God calls for in Scripture? Childlike faith. Childlike faith. You don't have to have it all figured out to have a faith when you exercise it that it pleases God. In fact, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us what kind of faith it is that pleases God. He writes this, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus responds to faith, to trust. No matter how weak, no matter how tried or imperfect it might be, he looks into the heart to see what faith is there what willingness to trust is there. That's how we come into a relationship with God, isn't it? Think about your own experience, perhaps. Some come with ignorant faith. Some come with a desperate faith. Some with only enough faith to say, Lord, save me. God, forgive me. See, again, it's not the amount of faith that's the key. It's what your faith is in. What's crucial is the object of your faith. Not how much you have. You know, many of us can identify with the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Thirdly, faith requires action. That's what we see here. The woman acted upon what she believed, how imperfect it was. Someone once wrote, a person's faith is not judged by what, it says, by what he says about it, but by what he does about it. And both people in the stories this morning had a faith that took action, a faith that took risks. It was a faith that sought out Jesus at a time of need. Where do you go when you're desperate? 
Where do you go when you've exhausted all of your resources to fix things? Where do you go when there's nobody else that can meet those needs? And lastly, God's perfect will is oftentimes worked out differently than we might desire. David Garland writes, evil, sickness, and the death of little children continue to exist in our world. Not every touch heals, and those with faith still hear the dreaded word from the doctor, your little girl is dead. This passage does not offer any explanation for why a loving God allows evil to continue to exist or why the inexplicable still occurs. It does affirm that God is on the side of those who suffer and are stricken with grief. A miracle does not occur in every disastrous situation, but it does not lessen God's power to save. The miracle of the healing of emotional pain is no less miraculous. Faith calls us to believe that God knows better than we, that he knows the purpose even in our suffering, and most importantly, that he is with us through our suffering. I don't know what your life situation is this morning, whether you're facing issues and needs that are far beyond your capacity to handle yourself, but I can tell you from my experience as well, more importantly, the teaching of Scripture, God cares, and he will walk with you through whatever you're experiencing. David, the psalmist, in the midst of great difficulty, wrote these wonderful words, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The ultimate enemy, the final foe that we will all one day face is death. And that has, that has huge implications for us that Jesus demonstrated his power even over death. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great news of the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, is that God not only loves you, but he's taken care of the problem that produces death and that sin and separation from God. So I have to ask you this morning, have you put your trust in Christ? Have you set aside any other way that you think that's going to win you points with God and get you into heaven? Going to church, doing good things, helping people, all wonderful things, but it's not enough. Um, God invites you to trust him, to believe in his work on your behalf that he did for you, now, if you've already done that, God wants you to trust in him. And as the kids learn during VBS, you will trust God only as well as you know him. But the more that you get to know him and you discover that how much he loves you and how trustworthy he is, then we trust him more with the things in our lives. We'll trust him to the extent that we know he cares for us and loves us and wants to be a part of our lives. Well, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the message of these stories that you saw into the hearts of these two people and you saw their willingness to trust in you. Lord, we too come, need to come to that point where we know enough about you that we are willing to trust in you. 
initially for our salvation, that our sins might be forgiven, that our ultimate destiny might be secured. But we also have to trust you day by day with the issues and the, and the situations that we encounter. Lord, you already know what our, our days ahead hold for each of us. You've already seen them when we haven't even lived one. And so we put our trust in you because we know that you love us and you care for us. So Lord, may this be a time of really trusting you. And we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.